Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Before both men rose to the top jobs in their countries, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping achieved a feat for the world's most delicate bilateral relationship. The pair of then-vice presidents struck up a remarkable rapport. The bonhomie between Xi and Biden was bound together on basketball courts, hours of private conversations, and at dining tables where they took to clinking their wine glasses for celebratory cheers. There's just a practical benefit from having a personal relationship with another world leader in times of misunderstanding, said Biden in 2011. But now, as tensions between Washington and Beijing continue to mount, their personal relationship is under strain. Today, the leaders will have a rare one-on-one phone call. Taiwan, Ukraine and economic competition are on the agenda. But how to keep China at bay isn't the only foreign policy challenge on Biden's plate. Vladimir Putin's Russia is consuming much of his attention. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how can America counter China and Russia? My guest is Wendy Sherman, America's Deputy Secretary of State since 2021 and the country's second most senior diplomat. Sherman's been at the table of some of America's most high-stakes talks with North Korea when she served in the Clinton administration and later as the chief negotiator of the Iran nuclear deal, which was struck during Barack Obama's presidency. Sherman is renowned for her shrewd, steely demeanor. Washington watches put that down to her pre-politics career as social worker in her home state of Maryland. Now her toughness is being put to the test with the twin challenges of Russia and China. Wendy Sherman, welcome to The Economist Asks. Great to be with you, Anne. Thanks for having me. We'll talk as we go along about the wider challenges to American foreign policy and including China. But first, I want to ask you about the war in Ukraine. Now in its sixth month, America has sent around $54 billion in assistance. President Zelensky has stated his war aim is to restore the territorial integrity of the whole of the country. Does the Biden administration support that war aim? And what can it do to bring that about? We are in a very tough position because of the unjust and premeditated decision that Vladimir Putin made to invade another country. We all, I think, signed up to the UN Charter of the territorial integrity of countries, of the right to choose its own political future, and the importance of sovereignty. And Putin has undermined all of those principles that the world uh, subscribes to. So there is a lot at stake in this war uh, and in what Putin's doing. And I think President Biden said it best when he made his uh, remarks about uh, the war most recently. We are not going to be any different than Ukraine. Nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. And so we support Ukraine's ambitions for its country. You've met Vladimir Putin. What is it like to sit across the table from him? And what do you think it would take to get him to stop his war? 
Well, I can't begin to imagine what it's like inside of his head. I can say in the time that I spent the most time with him was in Sochi uh, with then Secretary John Kerry. We spent about four hours with him and he's very smart. Uh, He didn't have a piece of paper in front of him. He's very fluid, very sure of himself. I think he has a vision about where he's headed. My guess is he's going to pursue it and the rest of the world needs to understand what his ambition is. You know, Foreign Minister Lavrov has said in the most recent days that Russia clearly wants to take back the whole country, not just the East, which is bad enough, that Russia wants to get rid of the regime and make sure that the country is culturally with its historic roots, uh, which is quite chilling, quite frankly. Well, there are two ways to look at that question of what are the war aims of Russia and control of how much of of Ukraine. Already, Russia controls a swathe of eastern Ukraine, so that would need to be reversed, which would be hard enough. The foreign minister from Moscow, Sergei Lavrov, suggesting that Russia's military objectives are expanding, as you reflect. But in that case, should Ukraine be prepared to accept some form of diplomatic deal which might end up ceding land to Russia to stop the furtherance of the war? Well, as you noted earlier, and President Zelensky has been very clear about what his uh, choice is. You know, this is a sovereign nation that gets to decide its own future. And the world has come together in support of uh, Ukraine. Uh, The resolution at the UN General Assembly was, I believe, if I recall the number correctly, 141 countries. We are in a terrible place because of the unprovoked and unjust decision that Vladimir Putin made. And you know, people have pushed for diplomacy. We are all for diplomacy. We tried diplomacy before he uh, went forward with this outrageous invasion. And it could happen very simply. Vladimir Putin could simply stop the violence, pull back his troops and sit down at a table. But he probably won't do that, or there's not much sight that he would do. The only point I might quibble with you about is if we start to say, well, it's all or nothing here, it seems very unlikely that in any imaginable scenario, for instance, that the Crimea would revert to Ukrainian control. So I just wonder whether the position that you espouse, or or at least publicly espouse, seems to ask for things which a lot of regional experts think are unlikely to happen, and there might need to be something of a reality check about the end point of this war. Well, look, we have said that we support the ambition of the Ukrainian people, and they will make whatever choices they believe are necessary. What is most critical here, and why I keep coming back to President Putin, is because he really can do things here to better the situation, uh, most decidedly to just stop. We really support the UN in its efforts to create a way for grain to get out of Ukraine in the port of Odessa. We will see in the next coming days whether in fact uh, the Russians stay true uh, to the commitment they've made. It was a bit concerning to say the least that they bombed the port immediately after uh, this deal was struck. So I think the world is waiting to see whether Putin is good to any word he speaks. The conflict's now in its six months, no sign of of halting. How do you think America is faring with this idea of a, a long or at least a prolonged war? And how will the administration balance that with 
public support. It is reasonably strong at the moment, but it does face the prospect of waning as the war grinds on similar situation perhaps in Europe, where countries are beginning to count the cost of their support for military action against Russia. One of the things I'll say, Anne, that's been just remarkable here in the United States, because I think everyone has seen that our politics sometimes can be rather, shall we say, divisive and robust. There has been unbelievably strong bipartisan support. You wouldn't get uh, nearly $57 billion appropriated uh, by the United States Congress in two supplemental pieces of legislation if there was not strong bipartisan support. And that support is here in this country as well. The war in Ukraine has brought Russia and China closer together. Where do you see that relationship deepening? And where are the boundaries or potential fractures in that friendship? I think we all saw the uh, memorandum that came out after the meeting between Putin and Xi Jinping uh, right before the Beijing Olympics. Uh, And they're saying that uh, there are no limits to their partnership. We've seen in real terms, however, there appear to be some limits to their partnerships. We have said to the People's Republic of China uh, that we are watching, the world is watching, to see whether they provide military support and uh, real material support to Putin's unjust and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. And to date, they have not. They have clearly helped to spread the disinformation uh, that Russia has put out that it is sanctions as opposed to Putin's choices that have brought the food crisis when, in fact, it is what Putin has done that has elevated the price of food. But I think that China feels that it has the upper hand here. And although it will not pull away from Russia, it will not provide material support. So I hope that continues to be the case. And we are watching closely. And how will the U.S. deal with that duumvirate and the deepening of that relationship? And can America concentrate on countering both Russia and China at the same time? You know, there there is a view, and it's not only by those who at all who are hostile to the free world, which says this is picking quite a lot of fights, and you might actually need to have a hierarchy of friendships and, frankly, be prepared to be less on the front foot, less aggressive about at least one great power. So, you know, and the issue here is not saying to a country, you have to choose between the United States and, let's say, China. But what we do say is that there is a rules-based international order uh, and that we all should be playing by the same rules so that countries, particularly in the developing world, have a chance to get ahead without uh, so much debt that might be created by uh, less than transparent and fair loans by the PRC, for instance, or practices that distort how markets ought to operate. Uh, The irony is that the People's Republic of China has been able to rise because of that rules-based international order. And now that they have gotten into a stronger position, they'd like to set their own rules and ignore those rules that help would help other countries to rise in the way that they did. Part of what the United States is saying to the world is, no, we're not asking you to make a choice, but we are urging you to look at the rules-based international order, to insist on a fair playing field, to make sure that your country, your sovereignty, your data, your future is safe uh, in how you interact with other countries and providing countries with options 
including a strong option for democracy. We work with countries that are not democracies, but are trying to play uh, by the international rules of order, by the UN charter, and by all that we have all worked together uh, to ensure that all countries have a chance for a good future for their people. We're recording this interview with you the day before President Biden's due to speak to Xi Jinping to discuss the war in Ukraine and Taiwan, a subject we'll we'll touch on perhaps in just a moment, and that economic tussle between the US and China over trade and the terms of trade. What precisely does the administration want to get out of these talks and what would be considered successful? I'm not going to speak to the specifics of a presidential call with Xi Jinping, But what I will say is that it is critical that we have channels of communication, that we are talking with each other, that we see uh, where we can work together and there are areas, everything from uh, counter narcotics to climate, of course, global health. These are all areas where we need to work together. There are areas in which uh, we are competing and we will talk about the things that we believe are counter to that international rules-based order. We will talk about challenges that we have with each other. You mentioned one of them, and that is uh, we think it is critical to maintain the status quo vis-a-vis Taiwan, that we not get into conflict, and that we have a peaceful way forward. But if we look to the big picture, Secretary of State Antony Blinken gave his speech in May laying out a China policy for the administration and said we can't rely on Beijing to change its trajectory. So we will shape the strategic environment around Beijing to advance our vision for an open, inclusive international system. Well, if you're not going to aim to change the trajectory in Beijing, isn't that just containment by another name? Well, what we're doing is... We're investing, as the secretary said, in that really fundamental speech of our strategy and our relations with China. We're investing in the foundations of our strength at home. Uh, You probably know that we're in the midst of agreeing on a piece of legislation in our Congress that would give billions of dollars to make sure that we invest in the technology we need for the future. We're aligning with partners and allies on our approach abroad. And we're harnessing these two key assets to compete with the PRC, to defend our interests and build our vision for the future. So those are really the fundamental pillars of what we are trying to do here and making sure that countries know that they have uh, options. We aren't looking to sever the PRC economy from ours or theirs from the global economy. Uh, We don't seek to contain or inhibit their legitimate development goals or market-based industry or economy. This isn't about a new Cold War, but it is about making sure we have a fair playing field and that we hold on to the core principles that the international community has signed up to. I'm sure that the conversations in the State Department and elsewhere within the administration reflect this. I'm not just trying to be awkward here, but if at the one hand you have Secretary Blinken saying that China is the most serious long-term challenge to the international order and the only country, this is a quote from him, the only country with both the intent to reshape that order and the power to do it, then how sustainable Is this international rules-based order when there are so many growing grievances over global governance? It almost sounds like this faces two ways at once. It said, we don't want a Cold War. We don't want to go back to that kind of relationship. But at the same time, we want realistically to push on China's ambition. And I'm not sure where the pressure point is as you see it. Well, I think, Anne, 
we want to put out an affirmative vision for the world and ways that we can support countries to realize their own ambition. It is why the president put out uh, an Indo-Pacific strategy as well, why we put forward the Indo-Pacific economic framework, a different model of really dealing with the challenges of the future. It's why we all have spent a lot of time in the Indo-Pacific. It's half the world's population. There are many fast-growing economies, nearly 40% of the GDP. And we are working for a free and open Indo-Pacific and a free and open world. Free, but also secure. That must truly be the aspiration. NATO held a conference in June with members and partner countries, South Korea, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, to discuss the next 10 years of the strategic concept. And it formally defined China as a challenge for the first time. How significant is that? And do you think there is a case for developing what we might call an Asian NATO? I think it was a very significant that the strategic concept included China for the first time. If you go back to the last time a paper like that was written by NATO, uh, it included Russia as a partner and China wasn't even mentioned. Those were the days, right? Right. So we are some years later and an entirely different world. And that's really what Secretary Blinken's speech was about. Uh, It's really about what President Biden has been saying. We are really in a decisive decade, as the president and the secretary have said. There is a lot at stake for every place in the world. And we all have to work at this. Nothing here is simple. Nothing here is simple. You'll be traveling to the Pacific Islands, including the Solomon Islands in August. It's a place I know means a lot to your family. Your father, Mal, was a Marine. He fought in the Battle of Guadalcanal and was wounded. What do the Pacific Islands now represent for American diplomacy and strategy? Well, thank you for that. This is the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Guadalcanal, and a major reason why I'm going with a delegation that includes Ambassador Caroline Kennedy, our ambassador to Australia, but her father, the former president of the United States. This is where PT-103 happened, where he was saved with his crew by two Solomon Islanders and an Australian coast watcher. So uh, it is very meaningful. This is where we forged very close ties with the Pacific Islands because we all fought together for freedom. And the United States is a Pacific nation by geography, by history, by culture. Secretary Blinken visited Fiji this spring to talk about setting up an embassy in Solomon Islands. Uh, Vice President Harris recently addressed the Pacific Island Forum and also noted that we're going to be working to open embassies in Tonga and Kiribati. I've spoken to the leaders of nearly all the Pacific Island nations since I was sworn in a little over a year ago. This is very critical. We want to deepen cooperation on climate change. All of these islands are very much at risk and support their economic diversification. Maybe not the question you would actually like as a follow-up to that, but isn't this also in part an admission that America has taken its eyes off the ball in the Pacific Islands? There is a view that the US and its allies were in retreat, really, uh, in this region in the face of a Chinese advance, and that is now something of a scramble to catch up. I can only say what the Biden administration has done, and this has been a focus since the beginning of the administration, and a commitment that we are making. I can't speak to uh, the years uh, of the last administration, but I can speak to this one. And we are very clearly focused on the Indo-Pacific, as I've said. 
Taiwan, I said we would come to that, and we should. There was a pushback last week when the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, said she would visit Taiwan in August, and the Biden administration then publicly opposed the trip after China sent out warnings about its ill feeling if it went ahead. Now, is this a miscommunication simply between Nancy Pelosi and the Biden administration, or is it something else? No one has told her she can't go because we have a separation of branches here in the United States. We uh, don't get to tell members of Congress what they do. This is her choice, and I'd refer you to the office of the speaker to see what her decision is. We have briefed her on risks that might be there on the circumstances of her visit. We remain, as I said earlier, committed to maintaining cross-strait peace and stability, and the U.S. is one China policy. Uh, guided by the Taiwan Relations Act, the three joint communiques and the six assurances. We don't have diplomatic relations with Taiwan or support Taiwan independence. We do have a robust unofficial relationship as well as an abiding interest in maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. Just to be clear, do you think it would be wise at all for Nancy Pelosi to go to Taiwan? We think this is a choice for the speaker to make. We've uh, shared with her and briefed her on where we see the risks and the concerns. And has the invasion of Ukraine emboldened China to invade Taiwan? If that were to occur or to be threatened even, what do you think the U.S.'s response should be? The U.S. defense relationship with Taiwan is guided by the Taiwan Relations Act. Our one China policy provides an effective framework for managing our unofficial relationship with Taiwan. And we will continue to make available to Taiwan the defense articles and services necessary uh, for them to enable a sufficient self-defense capability commensurate with the PRC threat. Uh, We, though, and this is part of the reason for uh, our having channels of communication, we want to minimize miscalculation on both sides of the Taiwan Strait and best ensure the future of Taiwan is determined peacefully and free of PRC coercion. I'm going to move us uh, around the world. We're spinning the globe a bit in this conversation. And you're, you're being very obliging in coming around the uh, global tour with me. You were chief negotiator on the Iran nuclear deal. That was the pact on Iran's nuclear program agreed with the Obama administration, the European partners, China and Russia back in 2015. It was then abandoned by the Trump administration in 2018. And recently, you've said that deal is not dead. Negotiations have been going on since February. What makes you think it can be revived? There have been a lot of bumps on the road and a lot of doubts about the good faith of Iran since it was signed in 2015. What chance would President Biden have of getting it through Congress anyway? So the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and the mutual return by all parties to it, Iran and the United States in particular, High Representative Burrell of the European Union, who oversees the talks, put an op-ed in the Financial Times laying out that he had put uh, what he thought was a fair and comprehensive deal on the table and urged parties uh, to study it. And really, this is in Iran's court. Uh, I think that all of the negotiators have worked very hard. Uh, The U.S. has only been in indirect negotiations. We haven't been in the room. Uh, And I hope that Iran will understand that it is in their interest to return to the deal. We are studying this offer. We've been ready to move forward. This is really up to Iran. And I hope uh, they appreciate 
how much this would mean for their people. Last thought and a bit of personal reflection. You're well known for your steely demeanour, your matter of fact way of going at these, which I, I'm rather enjoying, actually. <laughs> but you admitted uh, once to, to tearing up in a moment of frustration during the Iran deal negotiations. How did the other side then react to you welling up? Uh, that would have once been a sort of something that was maybe used rather negatively, particularly against women in diplomacy, uh, politics or any high level negotiation? Or is there power in showing some fragility when you're sitting there eyeballing the difficult stuff? Well, as I say, I wouldn't urge anyone to adopt a crying as a tactic because it was totally uh, out of my control at the moment. I was so angry. And I learned early on, probably as a woman, that uh, when I was angry, I couldn't just be angry, but it was okay to cry. So it was tears of frustration for sure. And they didn't know what to do with me. And it ended up being helpful in the negotiation. But what I really tried to say to everyone, particularly uh, to young people, which is pretty much everybody now, other than me here at the State Department, is bring your whole self to what you do in life, because that is when you are your most powerful. So tears, but no fears. (laughs) That's a good line, Anne. I like it. I'm going to use it. It's yours. Deputy Secretary Wendy Sherman, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Anne. And do let us know what you think. Is Biden striking the right balance between countering China and Russia? What could he be doing more or maybe less of? Write to us at podcasteconomist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. Wendy Sherman discussed Russia's renewed war focus on the south of Ukraine and the hotspot of Kherson. This week, The Economist reports on Ukraine's fight to retake the city. To read that, visit economist.com slash Ukraine dash crisis. Of course, the only way to stay truly up to date is to become an Economist subscriber today. We've got a special introductory offer for our podcast listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer and the link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. The bookings producer is Melanie Starling-Condon and the executive producer is Harriet Noble. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. 